Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Uh, Dr. Clint Arnold is the chair of the New Testament Department at Tal uh, Talbot uh, Theological Seminary. He's a friend of uh, mine from back when Tam and I were in California. And uh, Dr. Arnold is, is quite an amazing man. He's, his advanced degrees are an MDiv from Talbot, uh, but also then got his PhD at University of Aberdeen and then did postdoctoral studies at the University of Tübingen in Germany. Uh, he has edited and written a lot of commentaries and a lot of books. He is the editor of the four-volume Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. His area of specialty is kind of the history, the Greco-Roman history in the background to the New Testament books. Um, he's uh, contributed volumes on Ephesians and Colossians to several ma major um, commentary sets. And then he's also on the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV, or the English Standard Version Translation of the Bible. Uh, Dr. Arnold is currently the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, and if we've ever kind of been lucky to have somebody come to Redux and answer questions for you, this would be the week to stick around and, and ask questions on the New Testament, Scripture, and a whole host of subjects. Uh, what I know uh, Dr. Arnold for most, though, is for being an amazing family man. He and his wife, Barbara, have three sons. And, uh, and then for this unique distinction that my wife always points out, and it's that you can never catch Dr. Arnold without a smile on his face, even when he's talking. Uh, and I'm sure you'll notice that here shortly. But would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Clint Arnold? Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I guess I want to begin by saying thanks to Justin for the kind of country style of music that we had here for a little bit, because I grew up, I, I, I like both kinds of music, country and western, and so <laughs> that made me feel really quite at home here. But I, um, one of the things that Ken didn't mention, and I need to thank him for such a gracious introduction, is... Uh, I know a lot about cotton, because I grew up on a farm in the Central Valley. I grew up uh, just north of Bakersfield, and I don't know, you all heard of Bakersfield? And, okay, good. And so I, I can tell you anything you want to know about growing cotton, and a little bit about alfalfa, but uh, that was a little bit of my background. I remember... You know, Bakersfield was a little kind of a different place growing up. I remember the town newspaper in Bakersfield ran a contest one time because they realized they didn't have a, a city motto. I don't know, does Bend, Oregon have a city motto something? And a lot of cities have these mottos. So they ran this contest to see, you know, what would be a good uh, motto for Bakersfield. And they, all these people sent in all these different things. And I don't even remember the one that won, but the one that I really liked was Bakersfield, a place where lizards crawl to die. And uh, it was hot. It was hot, arid climate growing up there. Um, and, but no, it's a real pleasure to be here. I had dinner last night with a few of uh, the folks here. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is to my heart to just see what God is doing in your midst. And so I pray that God just causes you guys here to just increase and abound and, and just really shine brightly in this community. It's really exciting to see what the Lord is doing. 
I want to talk to you about two things this morning. I want to share with you a little bit about the heart of the gospel itself. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about how the gospel comes to us through contemporary Bible translations. And I'd ask if you'd bow with me in prayer as we begin. Father, I come to you this morning in the name of Jesus with my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the work of your spirit this morning and that you would help us to see things about you and about your plan of salvation that would really grip our hearts in new and fresh ways, that you would increase our, our, our love for you and our commitment to you as a result of being exposed to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This year is a very significant year for me personally, but it's a big year for uh, the Christian world. Uh, for me personally, it dawned on me a couple of weeks ago that this spring marks the 40th uh, anniversary of my coming to know Christ. I was saved 40 years ago. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for the Lord Jesus Christ and the way he has entered into my life and made such an amazing difference. But 400 years ago was a, a very landmark event, and I'm sure you've already heard of it, and that is there were a group of 50 translators that sat around in England, in the south of England, and worked and completed the translation of the Bible into English, and it became known as the King James Version because it had the imprimatur of King James uh, the first of Scotland, King James the sixth of England, and it was a major publishing event. This book has been the biggest success story in the history of publishing. There has been no book that has outsold it. It has sold more than any other book in the history of the world, even more than Harry Potter. Uh, it is a big, big deal here. And I've got a, uh, let me uh, turn this thing on. I forgot to do that. And I got a couple of slides. Yeah, it looks really good up there that I'll point out. There's King James in all of his glory. And there's a, a, the frontispiece of the Bible that we uh, are referring to there, the King James Version of 1611. And so I want to say a few things about the King James Version because it's left quite a legacy that we want to remember this morning. There's King James. Um, okay. I'm the shortest guy in my family. All my boys played basketball, so we know about King James, but there he is again. Um, but uh, the King James Version is, uh, has had a big influence. Uh, here's my copy of the King James Bible, and I was gifted this by a great-grandmother when I was eight years old. Now, I was raised in a family as a non-Christian family, and I uh, only had very, very few relatives that were even Christians in my family, but I had a great-grandmother that really knew and loved the Lord, and she gave me this copy of the Bible, and it was a King James Version. In fact, she even wrote in it right here. It, she says, uh, presented to my sugar boy Clinton <laughs> from your grandma with all my love. Study this and you will... Have, you will never go wrong. It is your guide to heaven. May God bless you, my dear little man. And so I treasure that, and it was great. And I took it home, and as an eight-year-old, you know, I was just totally into reading, being a farm kid. Not really. Um, and it, uh, you know, here it is. And I would try to read it sometimes, and I could not make sense of it. 
I mean, I, I just didn't, uh, I wasn't very good academically at those, that stage. I remember when my family first started going to church when I was about 13, I didn't even know what the word salvation meant. Uh, I remember I'd heard of the Salvation Army, but that was all I knew about. So part of it was me, but part of it was the fact that this is a very old Bible and some of the words don't even make sense anymore. Um, let me see, test your ability here with some of the language of the King James. Uh, Psalm 139.13 says, Thou hast possessed my reins. Do you all know what that means? That's your kidneys. Uh, let us walk honestly, not in chambering and wantonness. I hope nobody here uh, lives a life of chambering. Well, it relates to sexual immorality. The instruments also of the churl are evil. It says in Isaiah 32.7, the churl, you all are familiar with the churl. Well, it has to do with peasant people that are rather boorish. Uh, I love this one, Job 41.18, by his sneezings a light doth shine. That's the sneezing of Leviathan that blows uh, fire out of his mouth. And James 2.3, ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. Now, it means something different today than it did back then. The King James was a marvelous translation for its time. In fact, I heard somebody say recently, we can refer to it as the good news version for 17th century man. Uh, but for those of us living today, some of the language is a bit archaic and old and outdated. Um, but for the time, it was a marvelous translation. In fact, the thing that made it so successful was the fact of the quality of English and the quality of expression and how well it read orally. In fact, it was punctuated and worded so that for the public reading of Scripture, people could really uh, hear it and relate to it and appreciate it. Now, my family was uh, kind of a typical American family when I was growing up. Uh, and what I mean by typical is that it was shattered by divorce, remarriage, alcohol, all sorts of problems, a lot of base living. Um, it's hard even to answer the question when somebody might ask me, well, how many brothers and sisters do you have, Clint? Well, it's kind of a tough one to answer because I have a half-brother, a half-sister, a step-brother, and two stepsisters. And that kind of gives you an image of sort of the family that, we, that I grew up in, fighting, tension, um, difficulties. And, and so that was a bit of the context for, for my family growing up. But God was amazing in his grace and mercy. I look back and I stand utterly amazed at little things that seem to be indicators of God reaching into my family and into my life. And we moved into an area when I was approaching my teen years, that there were a number of Christians in the area. Uh, my dad had started working for a Christian man. There was a loving church. We were invited into the church. And I had the opportunity as a 13-year-old of the pastor of the church explaining to me the heart of the gospel after one service. And, I, I mean, I didn't know what it was all about. And he explained it to me clearly and simply, had his Bible open and was just pointing things out. 
And at that point, as a teenager, I invited the Lord Jesus into my life, and that began my walk with the Lord. Since then, God has used his word in an amazing way. I think the best way I can describe it is to do, he just did radical surgery in so many ways on my mind, in uh, the ways that I was raised up to think certain things, behave certain ways, and act this way. Uh, And God did an amazing thing over time of just reversing a lot of unhealthy, sinful patterns of behavior, uh, unhealthy ways of thinking, and turning things around. And I can tell you that... uh, Ken has mentioned that I'm I'm married, uh, and this year we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary. And I'm grateful for my wife. She's my best friend, and God's given us three amigos, uh, these three boys that uh, I love with all my heart. And God has kept our family together, and it hasn't been a situation of just gritting our teeth and trying to make it work. It's been wonderful. And it's largely because of God's reshaping work in my life and in my wife's life and, and, and listening to the Lord's word. It is truly, the word of God is truly living and active and powerful. And the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword and able to penetrate our lives and change us and mold us. And we can give thanks to God for that. It's also the sword of the Spirit. And it is what the Holy Spirit uses who indwells our lives to be the change agent for us in our lives. Now, shifting gears a little bit, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the single most important paragraph written in Scripture, I wonder what you would say. Would any of you vote for John 3.16? A lot of you. I mean, that's been a big one for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the single most important paragraph in the Bible was Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And I would be hard-pressed. Eh, John three sixteen, Romans three twenty-one through 26. In some ways, they complement each other what Romans 3, 21 through 26 does, however, is it explains how God used the giving of his son to keep us from having to experience the life in, Romans, uh, in John three sixteen that he talked about and perish. How God has used his son to keep us from perishing. And I want to talk about Romans three twenty one through 26 as being the heart of the gospel today as we get started here. And there it is in the New International Version of the Bible. Ken tells me that that's what probably the most, most of you use. I kind of do an informal survey of all my classes where I teach and ask the students how many of you are in churches where the vast majority of the people use the NIV. And majority of students, that's it. The, the NIV has been the King James Version of our generation. It's been the common Bible Uh, for many, many people. And this is the way it's worded in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And I've got to pause there for a moment because it speaks of a righteousness from God. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. There's no difference for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God. Twice there, the phrase righteousness of God appears, and it appears a number of times in the book of Romans. The righteousness of God and righteousness from God. And I've got to stop and ask you this question as we begin. When you die and stand before God at the end of days, and he asks you, and this is typical question when we share the gospel, why should I let you into my heaven? What is our claim upon God? What can we possibly tell God at that juncture as to why I should have access to heaven, why I should be with him forever, and so on? For a lot of people, they would look at this and think, well, I, I, I've been fairly decent. I haven't been perfect, but I've been fairly decent in my life. And if God would really look at my life, he would see that the good outweighs the bad. And for a lot of people, that's their claim on God, that it just slightly outweighs the bad or even quite a bit outweighs the bad. And yet, what the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can make a claim upon God. Not one single soul can make a claim upon God. But the good news of this passage is that there has been a righteousness from God that has been revealed. A righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language of this righteousness here has to do with the fact that God is perfect, God is holy, and God is just. We don't measure up, but God, rich in his mercy, rich in his grace, has given us his righteousness as a free gift, based upon the work of Jesus Christ. This righteousness has enabled us to have our sins forgiven and to have the slate washed clean. But it's more than that, folks. It's more than that. Because there's a positive righteousness that has been gifted to us based upon the fact that Jesus Christ has led a, per- led a perfect and sinless life and based on his righteousness, God can look at us and gift us with his righteousness and that is part of the righteousness that he's talking about here. It was mentioned at the beginning of the service, a concern for Japan. And I don't know about you, it has just been amazing looking at these pictures that are coming through with the earthquake, with the tsunami that is washed in, now with the potential of a nuclear meltdown, with the potential of thousands and thousands of lives lost, and it just came in an instant. And I'm sure the Japanese people are thinking about eternal Issues even more so than before because of the suddenness of the specter of death. It makes me think that way too. I mean, living in California, and I'm sure you guys think this way too, is there a big one coming for us? We don't know the hour or the day when something amazing could happen, but the Lord will call us to accountability and are we prepared? This passage talks about three reasons for hope that develop this righteousness from God. And I've highlighted them here in yellow. Justified, redemption, sacrifice of atonement. 
And I just want to talk about each of them very briefly and then move on and talk about the Bible in translation now. But three very important concepts that help us better understand what John 3.16 is all about and how it is that God can give us eternal life and keep us from perishing. The first one that comes in is in verse 24. We're justified freely by his grace. Justified freely by his grace. This is judicial language. It's the language of the courtroom. Sometimes people refer to it as forensic language. And it has to do with an image of standing before a judge in a, in a legal courtroom situation. It's a powerful image that the gospel is presenting here, that Paul is presenting of the gospel. And it basically envisions God as the judge at the end of days and at the end of time when every knee will bow and every tongue will have to give an account before God. And God is the ultimate and final judge. And when we go and stand before God, what will the verdict be? And what this passage declares is mighty good news because it says God will declare us acquitted. God will declare us not guilty. And the good news is that I can know that right now. I remember when I was a kid and just first started going to church, a man got up on the uh, platform and the pastor was interviewing him and he was a farmer and I remember the pastor asking him, uh, what would happen if you were to die today? Do you know where you would go? And I'm just listening away here. And this farmer said, oh, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt where I would go. And then the pastor said, well, how do you know? And, and he says, well, I know that I would be in God's presence and I would be with Jesus forever and I'm completely saved. And I was just, as a 13-year-old, I was just aghast. How could anybody know that? I mean, you don't, there's no way you would know that. But the good news is God wants you to know that, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because what he's saying in this passage is that the judge has already rendered his verdict. He has already made that de declaration of not guilty. And he's put it into the present time. And he wants you to know that if you, by faith, have entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know what that verdict will be. He has justified you. He has declared you not guilty. Isn't that great news? He has declared you not guilty. And you know what that end time verdict will be. And the interesting thing is, it's a free gift. He justified us freely by his grace. The second one that comes up here is redemption. And redemption is another word picture. And it comes from the language of slavery. And slavery was a big deal in the Roman Empire. Up to a third of everyone living in the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery was a big deal for the Israelites because they had spent 400 years in slavery and in captivity in Egypt. And this Language that's used in this passage, everyone who read it would identify with it because it was the language of slavery. Redemption means buying out of slavery. You were in bondage, you were trapped, and you have been bought out of that. Yet another picture of what Christ has accomplished by his work and his death on the cross. We were enslaved to sin, we were bent in that direction, and God has redeemed us out of that. It gives us hope for right now, insofar as if we think that we are trapped in a particular 
rut of bondage, we can get out. It's a, it's a tremendous hope. And there's a lot more that could be said on that. And then in verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now the word that stands behind this, sacrifice of atonement, is a very significant Greek word, and it's translated a lot of different ways. The King James Version translated it propitiation. And actually, in terms of technical significance, that is a better translation than the NIV's sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement means, atonement is an old word still that means of reconciliation when bringing two alienated people together. But the word propitiation, which is probably the better translation, even though nobody knows what it means, it has to do with appeasing God's anger, God's wrath over sin. And I have to stop here and say for a moment that the idea of God being angry over sin is kind of fallen into displeasure in a number of Christian circles recently. In fact, in the UK, there has been uh, a very prominent evangelical minister that has kind of repudiated this whole notion and wants to portray God is just completely loving without this angry side and even goes so far as to speak of God sacrificing his son as an act of child abuse. Uh, but what is missing, I think, in those kinds of concerns is the fact that God is not only loving, but God is also just. And we've got to hold these two in, the, in a, a dynamic tension here. God is loving and God is just. This last summer, my wife got one of these wonderful little envelopes in the mail from the Orange County Courthouse, and she got to go serve on jury duty. And she thought, well, most of the time we get off, so I probably go do my day. Well, lo and behold, she got chosen to be on a trial. And she couldn't talk about it till it was over for obvious reasons. But the trial turned out to be a case of, of pedophilia and sodomy. And she heard things she never wanted to hear. She saw a victim just broken that stood on the stand and uh, was interrogated. Uh, but a victim of child abuse and sodomization. And... It was horrible. I mean, as I, as, after the trial, as I heard the story, I, it just, I found welling up within me just a desire to take a two-by-four and, and just break it across this guy's head. What were you thinking? This is just horrible. We all respond that way to these sorts of things. And it's part of the image of God that's in us because there is an innate sense of justice that we have that wells up when we see sin and difficulty like this. And this gives us a bit of a glimpse of God's disdain for sin. He's utterly holy, utterly perfect, and, and, and so on. But he is a just God. And there needs to be the proper punishment for sin. What this word tells us, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or as 
a propitiation, an appeasing of his wrath, what it tells us is that Jesus has absorbed God's wrath. That the wrath of God for sin came down and was focused on the Lord Jesus when he was on the cross. He took it for us. We don't have to share or or receive that wrath because Jesus took it in our place. And that's a wonderful truth. It's a great news, and it's the good news as part of the gospel. And that's what we proclaim. We can have this through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And the question becomes then, how do we get this good news out? I mean, this is amazing news. The news of a righteousness as a gift from God. The declaration of not guilty. Redemption from bondage. And Jesus taking the hit for us. How do we get this good news out? How can we share that? It's an amazing story. It's an amazing good news. The God of the universe doing this for us. You guys are doing a good job. You're being a bright light in this community. But I want to get back to uh, one of the other aspects of this because it needs to come, first of all, through the Bible and through Bible translation. And, and, and that's where I want to transition to now for a moment. Uh, if we were to just give the Bible the way it was originally written, it would look like that. That's Romans 3, 25, 23 through 25 in the Greek text. The Bible was originally written in Greek. The Apostle Paul wrote in Greek, and that's what it looks like, and that's how we would get of it. But if you were at McDonald's and you were sharing the gospel with someone and opened that up, doesn't mean anything, does it? For centuries, the church also was using Latin. And so the Catholic Church for years uh, gave the liturgy and used the Latin form of the Bible all through the Middle Ages. And that didn't do well either because no one could pick up the Bible and read it because most people didn't know Latin and couldn't hear Latin and that sort of thing either. And it was later on in the 1300s that a man by the name of Wycliffe, John Wycliffe came along and said, we need to get the Bible into the vernacular. We need to get the Bible into the language of people so that they can read it. And he translated the Bible into English. And that was the first time in history that the Bible was translated into English. And he made his translation on the basis of the Latin Vulgate, not the Greek New Testament, or the Hebrew, but the Latin. But it became the very first English translation of the Bible, and we owe a great debt to Wycliffe. In fact, uh, so much of uh, the Bible that we have in the King James Version can find its roots back in the Wycliffe Bible, even, some of the wording and so on. Um, But you may not know this, but Wycliffe wasn't the very first to translate the Bible into English. There was a guy that predated him by hundreds of years that lived in the Yorkshire Dales in the 700s, actually the 600s, 7th century. It was a Catholic priest that really had a strong desire to get portions of the Bible into the English language so that the 
guy pushing the plow and all of the guys working in the fields and all could uh, hear the Bible in their own heart language and in their native tongue. Do you have any idea his name? It's a, a man named Cademan. A lot, not a lot of people know about Cademan. But he actually translated portions of the Bible from the Latin into verse and made them into songs so that people could memorize them more freely and clearly. But in 1611, the Bible was translated into English by this group of translators working in, uh, around London. And this is the translation of Romans 3, 21 through 26 in the King James Version. And as we read that, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Apart from that word propitiation, and maybe justified and so on, it's not that difficult to understand. Uh, and it was certainly very understandable in its day. But that's the King James Version. And then, by contrast, a few years ago, there was a uh, new translation of the Bible made that worked at trying to get things into even better English in the way common people would speak to today. And that version was called the New Living Translation. Now, this, a predecessor to this was the Living Bible. All of you heard about the Living Bible? And that was technically a paraphrase where it really wasn't a translation from the original languages. The Living Bible was a paraphrase, just a rewriting of the Bible as it was in English. But the New Living Translation is truly a translation from the original languages. But notice the difference. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of the God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. It takes more words to get it out this way, but in some ways it's a little easier to read in this fashion and that was the goal of the New Living Translation to take these more difficult concepts I mean how many people know propitiation to take that and to try to express it in different language let me just share a little bit of technicality with you about Bible translation there is no one right way to translate the Bible if we were to try to translate it as word for word as possible, because of the different grammatical structures and so on, it would end up being kind of gibberish to us. It wouldn't even make sense. So translators work with philosophy of translation that has to do with a, a matter of degree. Is it more literal or less literal? Is it more word for word or more thought for thought? Or is it less interpretation or more interpretation? And then there's a spectrum that we have of Bible translations. And one of the ways that we might be able to chart this here is that on this, uh, oh, you know what? I've got it reversed. It should be just the other way around. I just noticed that. So it should be over here. The King James Version and the ESV are the more literal 
translations. They're, they try to be as word for word as possible, less interpretation, and to try to get it in that fashion. Whereas the New Living Translation, we'll just draw an X or something, I don't know, uh, is less literal. It's more like, how do I get this idea across, even if I use a whole lot of words? And there's more interpretation. And you might wonder, well, where does the NIV stand? The NIV tried to be right in the middle of that. And that's kind of the way, I mean, this is not a controversial diagram at all. I mean, that really is how Bible translators would, would view it. And the issue is, it's not right or wrong. It's a difference in purpose in translation in this way. Um, let's see there. What is the purpose of a translation? From the very beginning, when the King James was put together, there was a long preface in the original 1611 King James, but this is what they said is the purpose of translation, and I thought it's kind of neat. Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the well that we may come by the water. We need translation because we need to understand it. We need to be able to relate to it in our way. And that's the purpose of translation. And if we were to talk about the King James Version for a moment, this was their goal. They wanted to be as literal as possible uh, so quite different from the New Living Translation, as literal as possible, but with as good of English as possible. But they tried to be more word for word as they could. This is a page from the original 1611 King James Version, and you can see it's a, just a beautiful layout. Uh, there's little summaries at the beginning of a chapter. There's cross-references in the margin and so on. One of the things that made it a little bit difficult for some people to read was the Gothic script. But the extensive punctuation is one of the things that people would notice because it was made for the oral reading of the text. And as people have looked at the King James over time, these are some of the characteristics that they have seen in that. The language of the King James is often described in terms of its dignity and eloquence. The wording of the King James is pleasing and memorable, especially for people living in the 1700s. Its rhythm flows smoothly off the tongue and into the ear of the listener. And, uh, you know, if you look at current statistics of Bible sales, the King James is always, for this, on the sale of Bibles, even today, either at the top or in second place. It still is just being so widely used, and I think this is part of it. It's just the quality of English that was used. Some of the more recent translations, as this guy noted, uh, they fail because they don't have the music of the King James and the quality of English that had been part of that for so long. Now, in terms of the translation philosophy and the legacy, I would say that the contemporary version that probably best exemplifies the 
goals of the original King James is probably the English Standard Version. It intentionally tries to be essentially literal, not as much interpretation as the NIV or the New Living, and it tries to have a quality of English that is good for the public reading of Scripture and so on. Uh, but it doesn't read like the New Living Translation does. But the New Living would have a lot more interpretation as far as it goes as well. So it raises the question that we all grapple with, what Bible should I use? And one of the things that we can be grateful for is that we have this amazing array of choices, that we can find different versions that are all, at different points on the spectrum of Bible f translation philosophies. And one of the ways that I think that this is a blessing is that we can use them for different purposes. One way that a lot of churches have responded to this has been in uh, using the NIV because it pitches itself right in the middle and tries to be a good all-round Bible. This is my NIV. I've used it for 20-some-odd years. I, I actually started using the NIV when we lived in the United Kingdom. Because prior to that time, I'd used the New American Standard Bible, and we moved over there and realized no one used a New American Standard Bible in Great Britain. So I'd switched to the NIV at that time, and a lot of churches have continued to use the NIV that way. Sometimes churches have moved, and this is where our church has gone now, uh, of going with a more essentially literal translation of the Bible, like the ESV, uh, for in-depth Bible study, or for even sometimes the preaching of the Word, and then to use the New Living Translation for sharing the gospel, or for giving to new believers, or for commending to people when uh, you want to read through the Bible in a year, because it's just so much easier because of the language of the new living in that fashion. And, and that's where I think that this is really a blessing, because we can benefit from these different translations for different purposes. And I think for sharing the gospel, something like the New Living is just marvelous because it's so much easier for a lot of people to read and understand. And for extensive Bible reading, it's a good uh, choice as well. But for the most precision, and you know it corresponds with the wording of the original as closely as possible, something like the ESV is very good. The key thing in all of this is remembering that this book is the bread of life. Jesus referred to it as the bread of life. Now, when it gets about this time of the day, I start thinking about food. I love to eat, and I love all kinds of food. And one of the great things of living in Southern California, well, I guess not, because I've seen all kinds of, you guys have a Thai restaurant right down here. So the Indian restaurant, I love all that stuff. And I love to eat. And the Lord Jesus called the Bible the bread of life. And for me, I hate to go without a meal. Uh, and I'm all grumpy and grouchy and headachy if I miss a meal. Um, and I think the Lord wanted us to develop a sense in which we long for the word in the same way. 
that we just can't get by very long without being in the Word, listening to it, thinking about it, reflecting on it, and letting it permeate our lives. It was a habit that was instilled in me by my pastor years ago that just encouraged me daily to be in the Bible reading. And as I look back over the course of my life, and I've shared a little bit with you about that today, I can't think of anything that has, has changed me and reshaped me more than the Spirit of God using the words of Scripture to change a whole lot of stuff. Well, in conclusion, the gospel truly is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the good news that God has called us to share. It's the good news that God has caused us to rejoice in and experience great peace from this last summer, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to the uh, United Kingdom for a couple of weeks, and we were in Cambridge, England, for a better part of a week, and actually it was working on some of the things related to the ESV, and just a wonderful set, and Cambridge is such a beautiful place if you've never been there, and, uh, and we were having a marvelous time with friends and, and doing the work and yet having an opportunity to play. And toward the end of our time there, uh, we got a telephone call on our cell phone from my oldest son. And uh, he sounded rather grave. And when you're so far from home, you wonder about these things and always have a fear that something could happen in your absence. And as I was talking with him on the phone, he, he basically said, Dad, I hate to tell you this, but uh, Grandma, something bad has really happened, and they had to rush her to the hospital. And she's in the hospital in um, intensive care right now. And I said, well, tell me, uh, as soon as you get any information, what's happened? And about an hour later, he called back, and he said, it's, Dad, it's a lot worse than I thought. Um, it looks like grandma's had two heart attacks and the doctor said she's had a stroke and they're just not sure if she's going to survive. And this was my mother and I uh, was just absolutely stunned by this and heartbroken and, and filled with grief as you can imagine and we immediately made plans to come back home. We fortunately through the help of some friends were able to get a flight home uh, rather quickly and uh, raced to the hospital and there was my mother in intensive care uh, and she was in her last few days of her life. She died a few days later uh, because of the damage of these heart attacks and strokes. And it was a very, very difficult time for our whole family. We were real close to my mom and she lived very near us. My mom became a Christian later in life. She had led a fairly hard life before she became a Christian. But she had invited the Lord Jesus Christ into her life. And as she lay there on her bed, and as we were grappling with the fact that she wasn't going to make it, the eternal questions come to mind. And, you know, I, I just wondered, is she really going to be in God's presence? Do I have the hope that she's going to be in God's presence? And the firm assurance overwhelmed me and my whole family because she 
probably didn't have the works to tip the scale. There's no way she could have made a claim on God and said, look at my life, I've been fairly good. There's a lot of difficulties in her life, a lot of bad choices and so on. But the hope didn't depend on her work. The hope depended on the Lord Jesus Christ. His amazing gift of righteousness, it was his righteous life that was given freely as a gift. It was his justification. It was his redemption. And he took the hit for her. And I could walk out of the hospital, and so could my boys and my wife, and realize, wow, this is real. This hope is real. And we're so grateful to God for the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for all of the cloud of witnesses that went before us, that translated it, that brought it into English, and uh, communicated it to us and all those who have shared the gospel. And I thank you for the reality of this hope. And I pray, Lord, that uh, this church may grasp the truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would just energize these people by your spirit to let the gospel be known all through this city and all through this county and that Antioch Church may be known as a a church that uh, is a vibrant testimony to you for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this hope and the reality of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.